Well, good morning, Grace Church. So glad you're here this morning. Whether you are watching online or here in person with us in the auditorium, we are so grateful that you decided to start your 2021 in church. We believe that God has big things for this year. Um, this week, Aaron and Nicole, Pastors Aaron and Nicole, are getting some great rest and relaxation on vacation with their family. So I have the honor and the privilege to share with you this morning. If I haven't had the chance to meet you yet, my name is Nick O'Brien. I'm the worship pastor. Here at Grace, um, just a little about me, I've been here for just over four years now, um, married my beautiful wife Taylor just over three years ago, and we actually had our first child, our, our son Griffin, back in March. And now when I mentioned the, the name of the month March, some of you recoiled a little bit, didn't you? Because you thought back to lockdown, quarantine, national panic, and toilet paper shortage, huh? <laughs> right? March was a crazy month, but something happens when a pandemic comes around, whether that's once in a lifetime or every year when we have a hurricane threatens to come. Whether it comes or not, we all do something kind of funny. We all turn into squirrels hoarding acorns. We rush to the grocery store. We get all the toilet paper that we can possibly carry. We get water bottles and batteries and battery-ran radios and everything that we think we could possibly need just in case the worst happens. I think a lot of us actually are addicted to our just-in-case. We are addicted to worrying about what if there is not enough. But this year, in 2020, as everything looked different, for the first time I really stopped and thought, why is it that I do this? Of course, there's a certain wisdom in, in getting the resources you need when there's an emergency. But I thought, why do I always stock up so much when I always only use just a little bit of it, right? And how come every time I rush to the store, I never ever think about the person who's going to show up an hour later and find nothing is there because I took three or four cases? And this convicted me because if I am a follower of a Savior who commanded us that the greatest two commandments are to love the Lord your God and to love your neighbor as yourself, shouldn't I be more concerned that my neighbor gets one pack or one case than I am that I get three or four? But I never even think about it. I should love them as myself. But as long as our thoughts are on worry, we don't have time to think about our neighbor, do we? As long as we're consumed with what if there's not enough for me, we don't have time to love our neighbor. Now, this is not the picture that Scripture paints of people who follow a radical, generous, loving God. No, we are supposed to be different, so we have to ask as we start this new year, how is 2021 going to look different than 2020. And church, I just want to ask you, what if this year, what if we placed all of our trust and hope, like we sang, what if we build our lives upon God's love? What if we trust his abundance, and out of that abundance, it allows us to be radically generous, because we trust that even if we give everything away, God will be enough. What if that is our calling this year? My eyes were opened to this idea of abundance and generosity recently as I was listening through a series from my favorite podcast. It's called Bible Project. They are a ministry from Oregon who put together YouTube videos explaining books of the Bible and themes through the Bible. Um, they put together podcasts and resources, and I could not recommend them highly enough. If you've never heard of Bible Project, check them out. Um, they have truly opened my eyes to see the Bible in a brand new way and, and it's a, in its original context but I was listening through a podcast series they did on generosity, and it opened my eyes to see some brand new things in Scripture that I had never seen before. 
this beautiful picture that Scripture paints of God over and over and over again, creating and sustaining abundance and generosity. But then humans, what do they do over and over? From, from Genesis to Revelation, the humans show up, they take too much, what didn't belong to them, and it inevitably leads to suffering, either for them or for somebody else. This is a story of God's generosity and abundance and humans taking advantage of that generosity and abundance. And now when I put myself in the middle of that story and ask, where do I fit there? Living in the wealthiest nation of all time, unfortunately, I have to say I'm one of the humans that has way too much stuff, right? We have so much stuff, and we don't need hardly any of it to survive. And so, church, I hope that you don't hear any condemnation from me this morning. I am a work in progress. I am just starting on this journey, but I'm trying to figure out what it looks like to look like Jesus, to be radically generous in a brand new way. So I pray this morning that he would open our eyes as a church, that you would join me on this journey, and that he would open our eyes to see our neighbors, to see those in need, to live generously because we trust God's abundance. And so we're going to start unraveling this story in scripture, and we could spend hours doing this, but we're just going to look at a couple examples. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 1, and I just want you to pay attention to the language of abundance that's present in this passage. Listen to the words every and all and everything. In Genesis chapter 1, starting in verse 29, God is speaking to the humans he's just created. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. This is a picture of generosity and abundance. And there was evening and there was morning the sixth day. This is a picture of more than enough for everyone, for the humans, for the birds and the beasts, for the animals and the waters on the land and in the skies. There's enough for everyone. And when we go to the next chapter, we see God zoom in just a little bit on the human story. And in verse 8 of Genesis 2, it says, and the Lord God planted a garden. And we've got to stop right there because gardens are nice, aren't they? But this word is bigger than a garden. So we've got to know a little bit about a little bit of history about the Bible to, to get this. The Old Testament was written in Hebrew, but by the time the New Testament comes along, by the time Jesus walked on earth, Greek was the most popular language in the world. And so the New Testament will be written in Greek. Well, before that happens, the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, will actually be translated into a Greek translation called the Septuagint. And so when Jesus was here, when he was walking on earth, most of his contemporaries, most of the Jewish people that he surrounded himself with, and Jesus himself, were very familiar with the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. Well, when they come to, or when Luke is writing his gospel, and when he comes to the story of Jesus on the cross between the two thieves, and he's writing in Greek, and he has Jesus turn to one of the thieves and say, today you will be with me in And the Greek word there is paraiso, which sounds a lot like our word paradise, doesn't it? So Jesus, when he pictures eternal life, he pictures paraiso. 
Now, here's what you've got to know. The translators, when they translated Genesis chapter 2 into Greek, they took the Hebrew word garden and they called it paraiso. This is so much more than just a garden. So let's dive back into Genesis chapter 2, starting in verse 8. And the Lord God planted a garden paradise in Eden. This is abundance. This is radical generosity from God. He planted this paradise to the east, and he placed there the human he had fashioned. And the Lord God caused to sprout from the soil every tree lovely to look at, good for food. And the tree of life was in the midst of the garden, and the tree of knowledge, good and evil. And the Lord God commanded the human, saying, From every tree of the garden you may surely eat, but from the tree of knowledge, good and evil, you shall not eat. For on the day you eat from it, you are doomed to die. And so what we have here is abundance, and yet the humans have access to everything in all of creation but one thing. There's literally one thing on planet Earth that they don't have access to, and what happens next? They do what the humans always do in this story, and they take what doesn't belong to them. So we're going to read this story in Genesis chapter 3, and I know you're probably familiar, you've probably heard this story before, but I want you to pay attention this time to the ways that Eve is just like us, to the ways she gets convinced by the serpent that God might be holding out on her, that there might not be enough, that even though she has access to all of this, this might be the one thing she needs. She's addicted to her just in case, right? So Genesis chapter 3, starting in verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? Hmm. But the woman said to the serpent, We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden, but God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree that's in the middle of the garden, and you must not touch it, or you will die. You won't certainly die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be just like him. He's holding out on you. You'll know good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye, you see how she's twisting God's abundance? She saw it was good for food, pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom. So she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together, and they made coverings for themselves. Now they take from the one thing they didn't have access to in all of creation, and immediately their eyes are opened, and they realize that they are ashamed because of what they've done. They are ashamed because they are naked, which is something they hadn't even noticed before. And so they cover themselves with what? Leaves. Where do you get leaves except from a tree? And where are they standing except right next to the tree of knowledge of good and evil? And so what Adam and Eve do is they don't just take the fruit and eat from it, but they actually cover themselves, they clothe themselves in the very thing that they were not supposed to have access to, right? They clothe themselves in the wrong tree, in the only thing in all of creation that didn't belong to them, and in the very thing that's dooming them to death. They clothe themselves in it, and it becomes their identity. It becomes who they are. They are now clothed in the tree instead of following in the image of God. 
It becomes their identity. And we have bought the same lie, haven't we? We've often been convinced that there's not enough, and so we take what doesn't belong to us, and then we clothe ourselves in it. Right? How often do we make things our identity that were never meant to be our identity? We seek excess, and we clothe ourselves in it. So if you want to know what you're clothing yourselves in, just ask yourself, when you meet a new person, what's the first thing you want them to know about you? Do you want to be known by your love, or do you want them to know how successful you are, how much money you make, your nice car, your nice house, the private school your kid got into, the great grades your kid has? What do you want them to know about you first? Because usually the answer is something that we've turned into an idol, right? It's, it's excess. It's something we've taken that, that God gave us for good, but we twist it and we take too much and we make it our identity. See, these things aren't bad things. God created abundance for us. He wanted us to live in his abundance, but the plan was never for us to twist it and to take it and make it all about ourselves. It was never meant to be our identity. Our identity is images of God. And so church, I just have to ask this morning, when we clothe ourselves in the wrong things, do we look any different from the people around us? When someone looks at your life, do they have any idea that you're following a God of radical generosity? Are we clothed in Christ, like Paul talks about in Galatians 3, or are we clothed in the tree of knowledge of good and evil? Are we known by our love, like Jesus said we would be in John 13, or are we known by our comfort and wealth and success, vacations that we take and post on Instagram? What do you want to be known by? See, the Bible has a lot more to say about this topic, and so we'll zoom forward in history to the book of Exodus, which is the second book in the Bible. And Exodus picks up on the story of Israel, which is God's chosen family, his chosen nation that's carrying his blessing to the nations. And it picks up on Israel when they are enslaved in another nation. They are in, Israel, or they are in Egypt, and they have been enslaved to the Egyptians for over 400 years. So if anybody knows what it's like to not have enough, it's Israel who's been enslaved for 400 years. And many of you know the story of, of Moses, how he's called to go to Pharaoh to say, let my people go, and how Pharaoh continually has a hardened heart. And so God sends plagues on Egypt until finally the Israelites escape through the miraculously parted Red Sea. But as soon as they enter the wilderness of their freedom... Immediately, within two chapters, they are grumbling, they are complaining, and they are worrying because they think there's not enough. I mean, these people just saw God rain down plagues on the people that had been oppressing them and their families for centuries. He, they just saw the Red Sea, a, a sea, part in front of them so they could walk through and gain their freedom. They are set free to live free, but they're still addicted to worry, aren't they? They just saw these amazing miracles, but they don't trust God to even provide food and water in the desert. They've seen God do amazing things, but they don't trust him to do it again. But of course, God does provide. He sends quail every evening, and he sends manna, daily bread from heaven, every morning. So the Israelites will wake up each morning, and they'll see that there is bread enough for each of them. And now I've known this story for a long time, and maybe you have too, but I recently read a book by D.L. Mayfield called The Myth of the American Dream. And she pulls out an element in this story that I had never noticed before, and I hope I can show it to you this morning 
In Exodus chapter 16, starting in verse 16, it says, This is what the Lord has commanded. Everyone is to gather as much as they need, as much of the daily bread that God sent from heaven. They can gather as much as they need. Do you hear the abundance again? God's generous provision. Each person take as much as you need. Take an omer, which is about two to three liters. Uh, It would have been considered enough for one person to eat for a full day. So take an omer of this bread for each person you have in your tent. So the Israelites did as they were told. Some gathered much, some little. And when they measured it by the omer, the one who gathered much did not have too much, and the one who gathered little did not have too little. Everyone had gathered just as much as they needed. And so in this community that God is setting up as his chosen people, there is nobody that can say, I don't have enough, and there is nobody that can say, I I have too much. But of course, humans try to do what they always try to do. They try to take too much. And what happens next in the very next verse, verse 19, then Moses said to them, no one is to keep any of it until morning. However, some of them paid no attention to Moses. They kept part of it until morning, but it was full of maggots and began to smell. So Moses was angry with them. And so they are supposed to take exactly enough for one day and trust that God will provide again the next day, but some of them try to keep enough to store it up to have excess because they don't trust that God's abundance will be there again tomorrow. But God makes it impossible for them to have excess. In this new community that he's setting up, in this brand new, redeemed, set free to live free community that he is setting up to carry his blessing to the nations and to eventually deliver the seed that will become the savior for all the world, in this community, excess is impossible. And at the same time, nobody can say, I don't have enough to eat. In other words, nobody starves while another person feasts. This is a community of equality. Did you notice Moses doesn't even get more manna than the lowest person in Israel? But now as as you're hearing these stories, there's a tension for us living in the 21st century in the United States, right? Because we have been so trained, so conditioned to think only through the lens of individuality. We've all made ourselves into the heroes of our own American dream story, right? But oftentimes, when when we are thinking individually, the Bible is thinking through the lens of community first. So we've got to open our minds a little bit to to read Scripture through the original culture it was written in. Let me give you an example. There's a verse that most of you probably know, because if you've ever had a big occasion, like maybe you graduated from high school or college, and your Aunt Sally probably gave you a card that had this Bible verse on it. In Jeremiah 29, 11, God says, For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. Now you need to know before I go any further that my wife is from Texas. And so in our house, in our family, we have this special word that most of the English language doesn't have. And it's a wonderful word because it communicates something that most of the English language can't communicate. And it is the plural form of the word you. Y'all. Can everybody say y'all with me? Y'all. Yes, and I am convinced that the word y'all is actually one of the most important words in Scripture because it communicates something that the word you can't do all by itself. But because we don't have a formal word for that in our language, 
when our English translations come to this word y'all, they always just say you. So let's see what, what Jeremiah 29, 11 actually says. Next time you read your Bible, next time you're going through a devotional or you're wrestling with some scripture, I want you to, I'm not joking, go to yallversion.com. This is a real website that every time there's a plural you in the original Hebrew or Greek that the Bible is written in, it will say y'all and replace you in our English translation with y'all. So I have a screenshot of what this looks like from Jeremiah 29, 11. For I know the plans I have for y'all, declares the Lord, plans to prosper y'all and not to harm y'all, plans to give y'all hope and a future. All of a sudden, this makes a little less sense on a graduation card, right? Like, God has plans for everyone at this graduation party. Like, great, thank you for thinking of me. Can you imagine getting a birthday card that said, happy birthday to your whole family this year? Like, mm. But the Bible does this all the time. It's all over the Bible. This, this y'all, this plural you. Because the Bible and the biblical authors think in terms of community where we think of ourselves. So let's go back to Exodus 16. Remember, God has redeemed a nation, set them free from slavery. He sets them up as a community where nobody starves while another person feasts because he gives them this daily bread. And in verse 15, they find the daily bread, but they're not sure what it is. So in verse 15, when the Israelites saw it, they said to each other, what is it? For they did not know what it was. And Moses said to them, it is the bread the Lord has given y'all to eat. You see, this abundance is for community. It's not for me, it's for y'all, right? It's an abundance for everyone. And this is a pattern that Jesus will pick up in the New Testament as he sets up his new type of community, his new covenant community that we call the church. And so the Apostle Paul can write to the church in Corinth and say something like this in 1 Corinthians 12, starting in verse 25. He says, There should be no division in the body but its parts should have equal concern for each other. If one part suffers, every part suffers with it. If one part is honored, every part rejoices with it. Now y'all are the body of Christ, and each one of y'all is a part of it. So Paul uses this imagery of a, of a human body, and what we've often done in our 21st century Western culture is the fingers over there and the ears over there, and we don't have a lot to do with each other until Sunday morning rolls around, right? Right? But Paul pictures the church as a singular human body where if something happens to the finger, the whole body feels the pain, right? We have this picture as well in, in the first church in Jerusalem after Jesus dies and rises again and ascends to heaven. In Acts chapter 4, we get a description of the church outside the gates of Jerusalem. Starting in verse 32, all the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them that there were no needy persons among them. This is mind-blowing. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Can you even imagine a church like that, of that radical generosity, where nobody thinks, well, that's mine, so I keep that to myself, but everybody has everything in common. Can you even imagine a community like that? 
See, we've got to pick up on the pattern here because in Exodus, God, through Moses, sets Israel free from their slavery in Egypt. And they become a brand new type of covenant community where no one person is greater than any other person. And then Jesus comes years and years later as the new and greater Moses. He comes to set his people free from their slavery to sin. He sets up a new covenant community where no one person is greater than any other. And Jesus will call this abundant life. This is abundance in community. But I realize that we're, we're here talking about abundance sitting in our sitting in our cozy theater chairs or sitting on your couch at home watching online. We're talking about abundant life, but we are very aware that people are suffering, right? There's not abundance for everyone, that's clear. We, we trust and we know that God has created enough for everyone, but if I can be honest, and I bet a lot of you can agree with me that I eat more than I need to to survive literally every single day while people around the world die of starvation. Right? And this isn't just around the world. I've never, even when I was super broke in college, I never once had to actually skip a meal because I couldn't afford it. I always found ramen or something. But Feeding America, which is the largest hunger organization in the United States, this year in the United States of America estimated that 50 million Americans and 17 million children at some point during 2020 didn't know what, where their next meal was coming from. That's one in every six Americans. So look around this room, and it's probably a few of us. That's a quarter of every child in America had a point this year where they weren't sure where their next meal was coming from. And that is a 50% increase over 2019. So church, if we believe this story of abundance that the Bible tells, how can we read about these communities where no one starves while another feasts, but then ignore the hunger that's around us? How can we read the story of Jesus having compassion on the great multitude and multiplying the bread and the fish until there's enough to feed everybody, but then we ignore the hungry that are in our midst? How can we read Jesus's command to love our neighbors as ourselves, but then prioritize ourselves over our neighbors over and over and over again? This is a trap that we've fallen into. How can we talk about this abundant life, but not fight for abundance? for our neighbor, just the same way we fight for abundance for ourselves. Church, we should be the kind of people that are known because we are crazy enough to wait in line for opportunities to inconvenience and discomfort ourselves if it means the good of our neighbor. The last thing we should ever be called is selfish, right? But so often, that is exactly what we are called. We've given people the opportunity to see us as selfish when we should be the most radically generous people on earth. A couple years ago in 2019, after our Christmas Eve service at the Melbourne Auditorium, my family has started this new tradition that actually comes from Taylor's family in Texas, where on Christmas Eve we have tacos. And so in 2019, after church, we actually went to Taco Bell to order some tacos and take them back home and open our gifts. And so my siblings and I, we got to the Taco Bell and we go inside and we're waiting in the lobby and the employees keep coming and saying, are you ready to order yet? Are you ready to order yet? And 5, 10, 15, 20 minutes passes by, and my parents haven't arrived yet. And so we're like, where the heck are they? We all left from the same place at the same time. They know how to get here. Where are they? 
And after about 20 minutes, they walk through the doors and we find out that they had been driving all over town looking for an ATM that was open on Christmas Eve because they pulled out $20 bills for each person working at that Taco Bell just to say thank you for working on Christmas Eve. And that was such a nice and, and generous thing for, for me to watch happen. And as they handed the $20 bills, first to the cashier and then to the other person that was working up front and to the drive through person that saw what was happening, you kind of saw words start to trickle back through the restaurant. And all of a sudden, all these people came filtering forward from the kitchen until we realized, like, we don't have enough 20s for everyone. But you know what happened is my brother pulled out his wallet and said, here, I have a couple. Because generosity begets generosity, doesn't it? This is the kind of people we should be known as, the people that are generous, and when people around us see that generosity, they want to step into it. See, our generosity is never about ourselves. Our generosity is about other people, and when we do it, other people want to join into it. See, blessing someone working at Taco Bell, that is a, a fun story and a great example of generosity, but it should be the tip of the iceberg of the way that we make sure that everyone is taken care of. And so I have to ask you, if you're doing just fine and you just got stimulus money in your bank account or it's coming soon, what is your plan for that stimulus money? Do you need it or can you bless somebody with it? If you have excess, do you need it or can you bless somebody with it? We should be people that give and serve not to show off how great we are, but because of three reasons. We give, one, because we trust that God will always provide enough even if we were to give everything away. Number two, we give because we recognize that we don't have abundant lives until our neighbors have abundant lives too, because abundant life is meant to be in community. And number three, we give because we want the church to be known for the radical love of Jesus. We want that to be what the church is clothed in, the radical love of a God who came and gave of himself. Right? This is what we should be known as. So I have to show you guys one last verse that's, that has y'all in it. And this one totally changes the meaning when you realize that it doesn't say you, but it says y'all. And it's from the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, where Jesus says, Let y'all's light shine before others, that they may see y'all's good deeds and glorify y'all's Father in heaven. See, this verse was never about me letting my light shine so people would see my good deeds. This is about the church letting her light shine, all of us together letting our collective light shine so that when the world sees our good deeds as the church, they marvel at the radical generosity of the church, not of me. And when they do that, they see that that generosity is overflowing from a God that modeled radical generosity for us, not just in creation, not just in giving us enough to eat, but models radical generosity in giving of his only son for whosoever believes in him shall not perish, but have eternal life because he gave his own son. Jesus came and gave the greatest gift when he gave his own life. And so if we are gonna call ourselves Christians, if we are going to say and believe that we follow after the model of Jesus, Christians, it's time that we give of ourselves. But we can't do that on our own, so let's pray right now and ask that the Holy Spirit would build that up in us, give us brand new fresh eyes to see the need, and that the Holy Spirit would allow us to be generous in ways that are totally countercultural. So will you pray with me?
Lord, we are broken. We have been so selfish so often. We've hoarded so much for ourselves and then we've actually made it into our identity. We've built idols out of our excess and our comforts. But help us to see that you are enough, that none of that is necessary when we cling to our Savior, to our righteous God who is more than enough in every season, in every circumstance. God, we just pray for your love to fill us, for your Holy Spirit to fill us and give us power that we can't even comprehend to give away things that make no sense. God, help us to be more generous than we think possible and to be known by our love. We pray that when when our country and when the world looks at the church, God, that they would see radical generosity, that we would be known and clothed in generosity and love, that when they see us, they would see you, and that we would let our light shine until nobody starves while another feasts. Lord, we pray for your help. We pray for your hand. We want to see you move in powerful ways in and through us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Would you stand to your feet right now and just declare these truths to God, worshiping him for who he is.